Welcome to Authentic on Air with Bruce Elliott. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Now we reached it. Welcome to Authentic on Air with Bruce Alexander. I am your host, Bruce Alexander. It might get a little weird in the Authentic on Air studio today. At least I hope so. Because animator and installation artist Dan Moyer is here today. I'm looking forward to getting a peek into the mind of an artist after today's reflection. Creativity and authenticity are natural bedfellows as far as I'm concerned. Creativity boils down to being able to find ways to solve problems. Authenticity boils down to honoring yourself through whatever problems you face. What connection do you have with creativity? Do you apply out-of-the-box thinking to social situations and your interactions with the world? I wouldn't have always considered applying creative solutions to the fitting-in problem. But as, I, as I, but as I have accepted the uniqueness of my authentic self, I have learned that I have a special ability to look at things from an uncommon perspective. Why wouldn't I leverage my unique skills to make my own life better? It's funny that I took out-of-the-box thinking for me to arrive at stop pretending to improve the depth and quality of my connections, but sometimes it's just like that. I'm curious if you have had to get creative to improve any of your interpersonal connections and what you had to do to make your life work for you. Hop on to at Authentic Identity Management on Instagram, threads, Facebook, or LinkedIn and comment on the episode 23 reflection post with your experience. Or make a post of your own using the hashtag Authentic Reflections and tag at Authentic Identity Management. To find out if I can apply my out-of-the-box thinking to help you start being more authentic in your relationships, comment connection, and I will take the lead. If you love this piece, the space we are creating, or want to help advance my mission of making the world a safer place for authenticity, here are a couple ways you can support this show. If you love the space we are creating and want to oh, leave a review and tell me what you think is great, needs work, or what you would like to see more of in the show. Follow the show on your favorite podcast platform or on all the platforms you use. Use that share function. Send an episode of this show to someone you care about or post about it in your social media feeds and in your stories. Those are all free ways to support the authentic mission. If you aren't comfortable being a spokesperson for authenticity, you can be a financial backer of the authentic mission by going to Patreon and searching Authentic on Air with Bruce Alexander and signing up for a membership. I'm dedicated to the work of this mission long term, but I would love your help and more quickly making the world a safer place to show up as yourself. I was initially introduced to Dan through the homeschool group. <laughs> I was initially introduced to Dan through the homeschool group created by my guest from episode 21, Lorianne Wilde. I don't remember seeing him at the group often, but I knew that we shared at least some common ground when it came to parenting our children guided by love first. We became Facebook friends, and eventually I remember attending one of his children's birthday parties, IRL. This was early in my journey of self-acceptance. I had started to embrace my authentic self, but only around the people who had already seen and accepted that unfiltered version of myself. And I had only showed that when I was too exhausted from shift work to deal with any sort of pretense. Dan existed at the time as a free spirit if I had ever seen one, and so did the large majority of people in attendance at this party. I always tried to tough out anything that I could to provide my kids a good time, but this was hard. I remember a lot of tie-dye and leg hair, Rawless chest and the smell of essential oils. I also noticed the lack of brown skin. Every wall I had shot up and I shut down. I'm still not to the place where I am comfortable being. Every wall I had shot up and I shot down. I am still not to the place where I am com completely comfortable enough with myself to be open immediately to every experience, but I will sit in my discomfort until I put myself out there. Back then, I was nowhere close to that point. 
in a space full of people who had no desire to conform to what society told them to be or to hide their weird, I felt so out of place. Magnify that by being the only black man in a space and you have the recipe for not having a good time. I am embarrassed at all the snap judgments I made that day, and I shudder to think how small I let others' uniqueness make me feel in the comparison. I left that party, what felt like an eternity later, having made almost no meaningful connections. But I remained Facebook friends with Dan, despite what had been shockingly disparate social circles. In the ensuing years, I loved watching Dan on social media because he was like an open book. It felt like he almost made a point to put out the ugliest parts of his life online for me to experience them with him. He was so open about the pain he was feeling throughout his divorce that I cried for him. When he became unemployed and was floundering like so many others were in secret, he shared it. He would occasionally post on days that he was feeling low, that he needed encouragement, and he wouldn't vague book about it either. He would lay out how he was hurting and what kind of support he needed. Do you know how brave that is? I did, and I reached out on one of, the, one of his posts and told him how much his honesty impacted me. We had probably the most vulnerable masculine exchange of emotions I had ever had as an adult to that point. That conversation laid a heavy part of the foundation that my acceptance of self sits, in, sits on today. I want to thank Dan for unknowingly leading the way for me, for being a guiding light of vulnerability that eventually guided me to the safe harbor that is authenticity. Thank you, Dan, for being your authentic self, and thank you for being here on my show today. Thanks for inviting me and for such a lovely, warm intro. I, I, I take that as my, my real honest goal is like, just knock people out. With... <laughs> That's awesome. I like that. I also wanted to say uh, it is an honor to be mentioned in the same sentence as Laurieann. Uh, she's one of my heroes, and I would follow her into battle. Same, same. And so you should check out her episode when it drops. That'll be uh, probably in October, but she was absolutely amazing. Everything that we know about her. Is even better hearing her talk about it like for an hour and a half. Yes. Absolutely loved I it. I plan to listen to that twice. <laughs> so can we start by you telling the audience who you are in your own words, how you spend the majority of your time, and why you think I invited you on the show today? Um I'm Dan and uh Dan Moyer, and I'm a working visual artist in the movie industry, and I also participate in construction of installation art with Factory Obscura. I worked on mixtape. Um, I'm also a single dad, um, and that means that almost all of my time is spent working or doing housework. <laughs> I pack in a 40-hour week in four days, and then I have my kids three days a week, and uh, I never stop running. <laughs> um, and I wasn't really sure why you invited me here today. Uh, but now I have, I have a feeling based on your intro that we're going to be talking about emotional vulnerability and I'm there for that. That's a good conversation to have. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you're there for that. Cause like I said, you really did help me get where I am today. And I would love to talk to you about kind of how you got where you were, where you're able to so openly and vulnerably talk about those things. But first, can you define authenticity in your own way? Authenticity. Uh, that's a I guess that's a squirrely one because like some things can be authentic in some ways and completely artifice or convoluted in other ways. Um, but for me, the, the kind of authenticity that I reach for most of the time is to combine my compassion with 
genuine expressions of my feelings. Um, so, uh, as a man raised in America, uh, I think many of us were conditioned to hide our feelings and sort of keep ourselves boxed in. And I went through some tough times in 2020 and got into therapy and started journaling. And both those things really like opened my eyes to the, for me, that the idea that reality almost exclusively happens in your mind. Uh, there's of course the material world, but like all of your experiences of it are tempered through your body, which is made out of feelings. So that's pretty important to me. Um, and then when it comes to art, uh, passion projects, like when people express themselves in a way that is like unique to them, that's a kind of authenticity that I just absolutely love, uh, like brain candy. I love that. Like you're, you're the first true artist, I could say, that we've had on the show. Like we've had some people who dabble and some creative people, but like doing it as a, as a lifestyle, you know, I know that you do your other job to pay the bills but you know you've been doing like we were with factory obscure for like eight years right yeah it's uh the work i do with factory has never been like full-time work i've always had a day job but yeah. i absolutely love them the first time i experienced one of their installations was maybe 2017 or 2018 i don't know they had this exhibit open called uh shift and my my two kids, no, I think it was just one at that point that we brought through, absolutely loved it. And I became really obsessed with the idea of helping the group that made that make more. And so I showed up to an artist mixer they threw after the fact, and I practically begged them to let me help. I was like, I will be your janitor. I do not care what work I do. I just want to help you guys do this. And then they could smell on me, like, actual art and craft skills. So I very quickly was sort of dissolved, not dissolved, but, you know, sort of dispersed into the group to, to help and, and make things. That's awesome. So can you tell me a couple of ways that people would describe you both correctly and incorrectly? <laughs> uh, huh. I don't know how people would describe me incorrectly. Uh, I, well, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Let's start with the incorrect stuff because uh, I like the idea that I could be some sort of like uh, spectral nightmare person to somebody out there when actually I'm just sort of a floppy hippie man. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I'm, I'm sure there are people out there who are like, yeah, Dan's kind of a scrub. I don't really trust him. I can see that. I can see that. I, I don't know. I don't know. Do you know? the dark ways in which people describe me that may or may not be No, true. like, you know, I I could see some people thinking that maybe you're quiet or um, that you're not very social, but I, as far as I've experienced, that's not true. You just maybe are a little slow to warm up, but you really, you've been a pretty great conversationalist as far as I've experienced. I do love to schmooze. Uh, yeah, but that activation energy is tough for me. Yeah, like you put me in a, a group setting where there's a bunch of people I don't know, and I'm going to sit there and sort of stare blankly until somebody approaches me. But once you open me up, I'm I'm just chatting. I'm pretty I'm similar. Stuck. I'm pretty similar. I've had to I've had to push through for a couple of different situations and learn how to be a networker a little bit. 
And so that's kind of given me a little bit of insight into not wasting so much time, not interacting because I, I want like in my resting state, I want to be interacting, but I let my thoughts get in the way sometimes. And so to push through that and just like let my body carry me to the place where I need to be. And then my mind has to catch up quickly. <laughs> so that's been my, my hack for myself. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so what are, what are some of the ways that people like, how would they describe you accurately? Oh, um, well, I guess I am, um, I don't know the word for it, but yeah, emotionally expressive. You can tell when I'm having a bad day because I'm walking around with a cartoon frown on my face or, you know, if I'm having a great time, I'm bouncing around and laughing. Um, so I'm, I'm a pretty expressive person. I'm creative and uh, maybe sort of intentionally weird to a fault, I guess. Like I'm always reaching for what the, the weird thing is, like what's the new experience, like what's, what's a new story that I can hear or something like that. Um, I'm not trying to do the same thing over and over. Uh, although I do have, you know, habits and like TV shows I return to and whatnot. So let's talk about that intentionally weird thing. Like, what is that like? Because I remember for so, such a large part of my life, I wanted so badly to fit in so that I would, you know, I would make sure I wasn't intentionally weird or that, you know, I didn't let my quirks show through the ones that, you know, that wasn't intentional. It was just like, it was a weird thing I had. I wanted to hide and mask all that stuff. So for me, it's hard to really wrap my mind around wanting to intentionally express that weirdness. I think there are a few factors there. And I will say that I totally honor the desire to mask and fit in. Uh, and that is, especially when you're growing up, if you're in school or if you're around a bunch of other kids, that's survival, like fitting in doing the right thing at the right time, being correct, whatever, like wearing the right clothes, looking the right way, that stuff, that's like heavy survival stuff when you are a kid or a teen. And I definitely wrestled with a lot of that. And I think for me, like, I'm, I'm definitely on the spectrum. I'm a bit on the autistic side. Uh, and so there are some ways that I have never been able to fit in. Some kinds of regular person performance I just don't don't have the capacity for um, and so I think somewhere in there I kind of set that aside the desire to fit in even though that is a big component of my like daily anxiety is like am I performing normal enough for the people I love the people I like who want to be around me yeah um, but yeah I had sort of set that aside and then I was like what are ways of being that I like what are ways of being that I feel are right? Um, and uh, I come from a long line of people who uh, chase their moral compasses to a fault. Um, and so definitely trying to reconfigure my lifestyle and like figure out new ways to be that are like better for not only me, but the people around me has always been kind of an obsession, I guess. So you say chase chase their moral compasses to a fault. Does that mean you're saying that you've had people who are so honest or so obsessed with the truth or like concerned with what's right that they've let it kind of destroy things in their lives? Yeah, I mean, I think it can be damaging if you don't sort of temper what your moral compass is telling you with like what I guess your social compass is telling you, you know, like, I don't know. 
one thing I think about a lot, especially as an artist, because uh, critique is a big deal as an artist. You, you make art and then you get feedback. And sometimes that feedback is really hard to absorb. And it's even harder to absorb if someone comes to you and gives you feedback you didn't ask for and it's all negative. Yeah. Um, in fact, that kind of feedback, while it may or may not be true feedback, is not actually helpful. So it's like, here's this thing that is true, but maybe not, not kind, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, like, there's, you know, there's a lot of different ways to be morally right or wrong for everybody. We've all got our own little amorphous little shape that is our morality. Um, but I don't know, I feel like there's, I'm just telling the truth. And then there's, am I being kind? And how do you marry those two things? And like, also, how to how do you access your moral compass through like, I mean, we are like our consciousness is sort of a byproduct of what our bodies are doing at any given time. So like, your idea of what's right and wrong can be heavily affected by whether or not you've eaten a cupcake recently, or you know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. So like, I think that. It's, I don't know, because morality exists, like it's an intellectual concept, it's not actually tied directly to our survival or our sense of comfort or whatever. Um, But the people I, the family I was raised in is very like, I focused on that and sometimes loses sight of like self-care and stuff. And can't really care for the world or care for the people around you if you're not caring for yourself. Right. I don't know if that makes sense. I feel like I kind of went on a No, that was like, I actually loved everything that you said there. In um, a couple episodes ago, I was talking about how I tended to fall into that camp of giving the unnecessary advice. You know, even sometimes I could see it as very helpful, but until I learned that what I think is helpful or what would be helpful to me is not helpful to everyone. It's not like helping is not a one size fit all thing, you know, Figuring out what is helpful to the person that you want to help is the is the number one priority if you want to be helpful. Would it be helpful to you if I gave you some feedback? Not at this moment. Okay, then you need to keep that feedback for yourself. Mm-hmm. And alternatively, like you know, I I told uh, Marilyn Pennyfeather who was on this show, like the things I try to try to work on filtering all those thoughts through is is it timely? Is it kind? Am I being respectful? Like. Even, you know, if I'm giving feedback to your, you know, your art installation, I could not like it. But me telling you I don't like it is not helpful. It doesn't help. And so if it fails any one of those three tests, I think that maybe you don't share it right then until you can until you can put it in words that that can be helpful until it's you can at least formulate a thought that does have some sort of, you know, like, you know, the color palette for me, I felt like was was too too muddled. I felt like, you know, the vision was lost. And whatever, give some sort of feedback that might actually help you improve or just keep it to yourself. And that's, that's something that has been a development and process. And it is, my wife has suffered from it the most because, you know, I'm like, Hey, you didn't do this thing good. And that's, that's not, that's not good feedback, right? (laughs) It's it's crappy. So I've tried to, you know, work on that a lot. I will, I will say though, like, just, I don't want to jump back too far, but uh, you said, I don't like it as not good feedback. And I will say, like, if you had that response to some piece of art I made, I feel like that would be kind of an opening to investigate. And also, it would be helpful, maybe not for me to improve the art, but it would be helpful for me to know about you as my friend. Mm. And that's 
to me, that's valuable information. Well, I, I think, oh, I think it can, I could, there's like a number of things I can maybe guess about that. I think it can be a good starting point, but I think in itself, it's not good feedback. Like, yeah, it needs, you know, it needs uh, rendering. Yeah, sure. like I don't like it because of this thing that, or it makes me feel this, or, you know, it looks too much like, you know, Rembrandt or like whatever, you know, whatever. So, I, but I definitely think that it's a good starting point. I just think that feedback should be able to give more than that, or you should be in a, be in a place to have a conversation about something before you say, I don't like it. And they say, well, why don't you like it? I just don't. That's not, that's not good enough to me. I don't know. My, my general approach about feedback nowadays is that, well, with, with art in the professional arena, I only give feedback if my fellow artists ask for it. And uh, I, I'm pretty tied to being a good tradesperson as an artist. So what I want to do is demo good art. And if people are picking that up, they're going to ask me for feedback. Um, it's pretty rare that I'm going to offer feedback to people, even people very close to me, unless, unless it's about my physical safety or comfort. You know, like if someone's doing me harm, they're going to get some feedback yeah. about that. At least, you know, if I'm awake. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm awake and aware of it. So, so do you think maybe, like you talked about, you know, being somewhere on the spectrum, do you think that, that there might be some tie-in to generational, like, being on the spectrum and that tie to that strong sense of morality? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It runs in the family. Uh, and I think that specifically with the autistic uh, spectrum, nowadays it's much more socially acceptable to be on the spectrum. and so. I talk to previous generations in my family about that very concept, and they're like, no, no. I just really like math puzzles. Like, okay. <laughs> of course you just really like math puzzles. That's totally not... Anyways, yeah, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I also think that because it's a spectrum, it's really hard to actually measure. Um, so, I don't know. But yeah, autism is it's a thing. I think about it a lot. I've been thinking it's been coming up, you know, in my realm of influence more and more. And because, like, I'm very clearly diagnosed as ADHD. Like, yeah. I know that for a fact. But I've often asked, like, if I'm not on the autism spectrum, is should ADHD be on the autism spectrum? Should there be, like, a part where ADHD, like, kind of factors in because that lack of a filter part and that, you know, that missing out on social cues thing, like, I, I catch a lot of it. But a lot of them, I'm like, I don't get what you want from me here. And that, that feels very, very similar to autism whenever I'm caught in that loop of like, there's something going on that I am totally missing. And I, like, I want to do it. I, I promise. I, like, I see what everybody's feeling. I know that people are upset. I'm just not, I'm not understanding what is missing from this situation. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel that. Yeah, I definitely, I haven't gotten a formal diagnosis, but I, I bump back and forth between the realms of the spectrum disorder and also ADHD as well. And I do, I do feel like those things are connected. I think those are like developmental things and like, I don't know, maybe ADHD has some like, I don't know. I'm, I'm just speculating because I'm an artist and I don't really know this stuff, but I feel like ADHD in some cases can be, sort of a conditioned response to the amount of structure we experience when mm -hmm. we're young. Like, when you're a kid, there's all kinds of invisible rules. And so I think 
ADHD and like hypervigilance can sometimes be very connected. Um, and like the whole idea of like masking, right? We already brought that up. That's like, that's definitely like in order to successfully mask, you have to just like very frequently check yourself, right? Like you have to constantly be like, am I following the rules? Am I paying attention to all the people in the room? Uh, and yeah, that's, that's varying levels of, of survival if you're on the spectrum, yeah. <laughs> especially like depending on your circumstances, you know. I, I absolutely agree. And you know, what I what I want to make sure that I clarify is that there's not anything inherently wrong with any of that. And that's something that I think is coming into like coming into acceptance in the zeitgeist is that you may have trouble understanding those social cues and that's okay. As opposed to before, you know, the last 10, 15 years not being able to, you know, behave normally in the social spectrum meant that you were weird and being weird was bad. And, right. you know, and that those things are starting to evolve and change and being weird is like, it's different and different isn't bad. Different is different. So maybe you're not attracted to those kinds of people for conversation or to hang out with, but you're going to have to deal with them, you know, at some point in your career or in social life or your kid's soccer team or whatever, at some point you're going to have to learn to deal with those people and you need to understand that they're not bad people or they're not wrong. They're just different. And, you know, they just, they just work a little bit differently. So take, take time. For sure. For sure. I also think like neurodiversity is important. It takes all kinds of people to make the world do stuff, to make the gears turn, whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I think that maybe goes back to what you were asking earlier about how I like to be weird. I'm like, I mean, for me, I like to speculate. I love sci-fi. I love fantasy. I love to speculate about what the future is going to be like. And like, the only way we get to the future with weird inventions and like bizarre, you know, sci-fi stuff happening is with a bunch of weirdos inventing stuff. Like, you, you need people to like think new thoughts and like come up with new ideas. Um, yeah. Really good point. So, can you? I don't know. It's this is a different question now because you know, I want to ask if you've ever had trouble being authentic, but your dedication to being weird kind of does speak of like being authentic. But did you ever kind of deal with the the opposite end of that, like trying to maintain some level of authenticity while normalcy, some of quote unquote normalcy. Oh yeah, I mess that up all the time. Like, yeah, so many, so many situations in my life where I've been like, looking back, I'm like, gosh, I wish I had read the rules. Mm. Um, all the way back to when I got married, like there were just so many mistakes I made socially during that, and then like everything in my professional life since. Like, I'm like, gosh, this is like human 101, and I just missed it. I missed uh, whatever thing I was supposed to do. Um, I don't know. And I experienced that uh, in parenting circles. Both my kids are at home schooling, sort of. They're on, we're unschoolers. Me and my uh, ex, my baby mama, if you will. <laughs> um, and uh, in, even in the, the crowds that we run with, the parenting groups, I definitely. I feel like I have to step lightly uh, socially and just sort of uh, 
hope that I'm not offending anybody while also sort of keeping my persona intact. Mm. So for like, I, you know, I'm, I'm a homeschooler as well. Like we've got four kids, we homeschool. We stick to a pretty, pretty structured curriculum. Can you explain to people who don't know what unschooling is? I, I will, but only up to a certain point because I feel like Lo- loose if you give too many details, uh, the audience comes for you. Okay. <laughs> uh, unschooling is at its core, uh, it's very unstructured, at least from the adult side. Uh, it's about sort of allowing kids to have interests. And once you, as the parent or the caretaker, have sort of identified their interests, the goal then is to provide them with as many resources as possible to let them pursue that stuff. Um, and a lot of it relies on some ideas that I've had trouble with. Um, ideas like reading, like learning to read will happen when it happens. And it'll be super right when it does. Or learning math or like stuff that for me, when I went to school growing up, it was like, you learn this thing at this time. They tell you to learn it in first grade or whatever, right. and then you learn it or else. Um, so, I don't know. One of, my, one of my kids was a late reader, but then, like, once they started, excuse me, once they started reading, it was like, it was like a transformation that took place over the course of, like, a week, and it was because of Minecraft and, like, yeah, my, my oldest went from not illiterate, but definitely not willing to read much to all of a sudden just consuming massive amounts of text. Uh, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to go much further into detail, but I will say that unschooling has been a really cool journey. Uh, and a lot of it is about having faith in your developing children. And, you know, there are definitely tenants to that that are implicit in how we teach our kids as well. And like that, it will have it's funny to me how uh, hard it was for me to accept that it will happen when it happens thing whenever my son was learning to read you know it was like well our oldest she learned to read by like three and a half four she was reading super fast and she took off she's still you know a voracious reader but he was like it was he was almost eight and he was still struggling and we're you know trying things and we're you know i'm starting to freak out like yeah. you know people are going to you know think that we're not teaching our you know we're not homeschooling our children. We're just like, you know, being lazy or whatever. And I started to care really heavily what people thought. And I thought that was really funny because I strongly associate my schooling, you know, in public school as having been like the basis for like a lot of my shame and guilt. And then I like immediately revert back to it whenever I'm trying to teach my child something different. And it was, I thought it was really interesting to have to like step back from that and say like, you're doing the same thing. You're, you know, just because you're homeschooling doesn't mean that you're going to automatically not have those things if you don't put them in place yourself. Yeah, it's, it's tough to let go, uh, and that, yeah, that masking that follows us everywhere. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember like feeling very scrutinized when my oldest was learning to read because it was later, and uh, my extended. My side of the family was like, what's going on? What's got going on there? But 
it eventually just happened. Yeah. And, and, like that's that's been my experience at every turn. Like the milestones maybe don't happen at the times that they're like quote unquote supposed to happen, but maybe they're actually happening when they're really supposed to right. happen. And when one of your children, I think your oldest is like coding on a regular basis, right? Yep. My oldest uh has picked up a lot of different like variations of like programming through just apps and stuff. That to me says, you know, we may be doing it different, but something's going right because that's not something you just do without some foundation of like good learned skills. So I mean you're doing something right. Well uh I, I just try to provide access when I can be mindful yeah. of, of what my kids' interests are. But I will say that my youngest learned, like, started doing math for fun at a very early age, and I was a little disturbed. It was like, <laughs> not really fun. Like, are you having a good time? Who put you up to this? My um, wife does Sudoku, and I'm still like, ew. Like, <laughs> just stop. I've never been a math person. I love words, though. I used to read the dictionary for entertainment, so... That's cool. That, I mean, but in comparison to doing math for fun, I think it, you know, in the scales, they like weigh pretty evenly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just different kinds of nerd. So, um, talking about that normalcy, like, did it ever weigh on you heavily that you, that you weren't fitting in? Like, was it hard for you to like make that correlation between who you really were and the fact that you weren't fitting in? Does that ever make you feel like depressed or sad? Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, yeah, I mean, like, I think for me, a lot of my identity, this is probably unhealthy, but throughout my life, a lot of my identity has been like very reliant on the people I have relationships with, like friends and uh, loved ones. And so, Part of growing up for me, even now developing, is trying to figure out how to retain my sense of self when I get very enmeshed in my relationships with other people. Um, so sometimes I have no clear picture of what authentic is for me because I'm lost in the codependent sauce. Um, so that's been like a lifelong thing for me. I mean, I like. I hope you understand that this show is not about being healthy all the time. It's Good. about, yeah, Good. it's about being, I, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's really important to tell stories about people who are in the, in the midst of that struggle. Like it's not easy, but I think it's important for people to hear. I'm not alone. Like other people struggle with this thing. It's not unusual to, to not be able to find myself. Like, you know, I was listening to the podcast and I heard somebody else talking about that they felt lost because they were not in a relationship. That's that's OK. Like, I think that, you know, even a lot of people have found the experience of just talking about stuff that's painful on the show as kind of restorative and healing because you, somebody else is now sharing that burden with you. Like, I, like, I'm here to listen and accept and give you a platform to tell your story because I think it will help somebody else. But I also think it'll help you. So that's that's really what the whole point of the show is. So cool. you don't have to hide anything that you don't want to. Okay. Well, let me just uh, bust out some really traumatic. <laughs> let's get into it. <laughs> let's dive into the worst of your life. Well, like actually, let's let's think of what was a bad day like back whenever you were still trying to figure out how to show up on a day to day like, on a day to day basis. Hmm. I don't know. 
I will say that abuse of caffeine has played a pretty critical role in my like not showing up authentic. Mm. Uh, I think living as a person who is an adult who has to work a 40 hour a week job, like is a lot of performing of correctness and normalcy, like show up and drink coffee and be productive for certain hours and like email at the right time Mm -hmm. or like, to people a certain way or whatever so i would say a lot of my life in the workplace has been about kind of keeping my personality pretty muted Mm -hmm. um i'm currently in a place where i'm surrounded by other artists and i can be a little bit more free but i i still feel like i don't know I, i think that being your authentic self is not necessarily something you can be all of at once. Um, I do a lot of journaling for my own mental health and reading through my journal. If you, I, I am being authentic when I write in my journal, I write down all my, my gnarliest feelings going there. Mm-hmm. Like all the, all the darkness I have to wrestle when I'm having a hard time, like, or sadness about yeah, after doom scrolling or whatever. But like if you were to read that journal, you, you might think this guy is super unhinged. And that is his authentic self. Yeah. But like that, yeah, okay, it's authentic, but it's not all of it. It's just yeah. the stuff I need to get out in my journal. Um, and I don't know, when I'm around my kids and we're, we're playing or whatever, like there are parts of me that I, I don't like let out. You know, I'm not, we talked about this earlier, you don't love uh, cursing on your show. And I don't love cursing around my kids. So, like, there's a part of me that, like, you know, wants to swear a lot. (laughs) Maybe maybe I'm being authentic when I, you know, let that part of me chill. Because there's Mm -hmm. still other parts of me that are still me. So, I don't know. I'm a firm believer in the concept of having, like, like, we have different us us components that we use when we're in different situations, you know, like there's the work you, there's the family you, there's the, maybe there's the church you, or like whatever different places you go that are your places that you're in. Like there's, it's like there's a committee in your head and like different members of that board will come forward and and sort of fill the role of you while you're in that place. I think, I think that's an interesting way to face it. Um, I think that whenever I was in my unhealthiest, place that was how my mind was i don't think that they're like i'm very strong in the the conviction that not all of you is for everyone so i i think that there is definitely parts that like parts of me that only my wife will ever see parts of me that are specifically you know kind of reserved for my children i'm pretty a pretty much an open book but i think that the the key for me has been figuring out that i don't need to change who i am for the situation but I need to let the situation shape me. So like, I, f- I feel like being shaped and changing for are two different things. Like, you know, it kind of comes down to semantics, but the perspective shift is really important for me in thinking like, I'm not going to be somebody that I'm not for this situation. I'm going to be myself to the degree that this situation allows me to be comfortably. And that was a powerful shift for me. Whenever I stopped trying to be what the situation called for and just started being myself, in a degree that the situation best helped. I, I definitely agree with that sentiment. I feel like the times in my life where I have tried to force my personality into a shape that seemed like the right shape, mm-hmm. I have paid 
mental health consequences after the fact. I've been depressed or sad or angry and been like, why am I like this? Like, why am I feeling this way? And then in retrospect, it's obvious that, well, I was kind of abusing me mm. by, you know, forcing my personality to do a thing that it wasn't really there to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, kind of have to be, what is it, the, the Bruce Lee quote? You like water, mm-hmm. you know? You like water. Pour yourself into the shape of the, the situation instead of forcing yourself into a mold. I don't know how different those concepts are, but yeah, I have to think about that. Well, I think I think that you're close. I think that you're, you're you're working there. So you said, you know, in being your authentic self, or like earlier on when you came in, you said, like, I may not be a good guest on the show today because I'm going through a breakup. Like, I love that about you. You're not going to let me think, like, it would be easy for you to come in here and for me to feel like you're not really interested on in doing this show because you're like down or you're like, you know, you've kind of pulled back from our conversation. And that became, you know, that was out of the window immediately because you let me know that you're going through something right now. And I told you like that's totally fine. It's important to to talk about the, the ugly stuff too. And like, I just really appreciate and would encourage more people to like just say what they're thinking versus you know trying to you know what i always call putting on a brave face because it always with me i thought i was much better at hiding it than i really was so i thought i was you know like oh i'm i'm putting on a brave face and nobody has any idea that i'm struggling but i was struggling and people knew and they took it as me being like fake you know it was you know i wasn't trying to be fake i was trying to be a better version of myself for them but it probably would have been a lot well served, you know, a lot better served to just say, like, hey, I'm going through something right now. Like, sorry if I'm not, you know, the most interesting person or I don't want to have a conversation with you. Like, I'm, I'm mentally exhausted. I'm emotionally tired out, like whatever going on. And then them have the opportunity to say either to be a friend and support me or to, you know, say, OK, like, I'll leave you alone for a while so you can, you know, you can get back into a better space. I think uh, our selves, our spirit, personality, whatever we are, that package is kind of like a balloon. And sometimes it's filled with more pressure and sometimes less. But for me, the experience of trying to like hide who I am, hide the amount of pressure in my balloon in a, a social situation, it's like squeezing a balloon. Mm-hmm. You, know, you squeeze it and then a huge bubble like fluffs out between your fingers or like next to your thumb or whatever, and because that pressure doesn't really go away. Um, and the times I've tried to mask that, to cover, cover that, to try to perform like happy, normal, friendly dance, uh, when I'm not actually there, like it doesn't tend to go well for me. I've known people with like serious acting chops who can do that. They can put on that smile and bounce around the party and. I can only assume when they get home, they break something, but <laughs> I mean, I would think so. But yeah, for me, like I, that's not a skill set I have refined. So I really like what you said. I think that that is something I'd never, I, I think it gives a perfect visual for that. Trying to, I don't know, trying, trying to hide something that is, that's not really hideable. You know, it's, you can, you can cover it up. You can, try to blend blend it in with other things but like really it, it's a pressure and that when you 
push down on one spot, it's going to pop up somewhere else. And so, you know, it's kind of like whack-a-mole, like, you know, it's... I like the whack-a-mole analogy a lot. (laughs) You you knock it down and it pops up somewhere else, so... That's that's very relevant to like hiding your feels too, because it really is just like you getting mad and hit them, hitting them with a hammer over and over. <laughs> like, get out of here! No, no, not now, no. And it's just it's gonna keep popping up in the ways. So you know, <laughs> I know that in whack a mole, if you don't hit it, it doesn't just stay there. But you know, in the in this theoretical whack a mole, wouldn't it be easier to just you know take that mole that's popped up and give it a hug and you know let it walk around with you and say, hey guys, here's my mole. This is what I'm dealing with right now. So. Yeah. yeah, or or even just letting it stay there. Yeah, because yeah, it does go away and it changes into a different mole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't want I don't want all these moles. And I gotta go to the doctor and get my moles looked at. You know, and then it's cancer. Oh, no. <laughs> so, as an artist, do you feel like creating art gives you a unique opportunity to, to embrace your authentic self? Sometimes, sometimes. Okay, so I think about this a lot because I've been a production artist and animator for about 10 years. And almost all of that time has been spent making art that I wouldn't have chose to, chosen to make uh, for people I would not have chosen to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that part of the narrative of capitalism and rugged individualism that is prevalent in America is that our self-expression is king and it is the most important thing, this individualistic sort of thing where people express themselves and that's art. Um, But making it your trade is really not about that. It's about crafting something that communicates a specific thing as successfully as possible to as many people as possible. Mm Um, and so when I'm working on a personal project, like right now I'm making, um, uh, an album of some electronic music and that really is me expressing my authentic self, my love of melody and weird rhythms and stuff. That's, that's really me. Yeah. Um, that hasn't been my career. Um, and I think that it's probably pretty important for artists who are starting out in their career to understand that it is it is a trade more than it is like a fine art mm-hmm. um and when you know you're trying to pay your bills like it's it's really not not super different from building a house or doing plumbing or whatever it's it's a specific set of like sort of hard skills that yeah. people get and then once they're good at it they get paid to do it do you do you ever struggle with the collaboration aspect, like especially as an animator? And you know, I know that you've done like a lot of rendering stuff, like lighting and visual effects. Your your creative portion is still artistic, but it's working with other people, and so your vision often has to like work in concert or for someone else. Like, does that make it hard to to apply your identity to it? I think that that that's not my personality. But I do, I could see that being an issue for a lot of artists. There have been times where I've been really tied to some artistic choice I made and then it didn't fit with the team. Mm-hmm. And I had to make the hard choice of altering or slashing or whatever. Um, but for the most part, art and craft and making things is how I socialize. It's how I connect with people. Like my happy place, 
uh, growing up was in the basement. My dad would be working on one of his RC planes and I would be in another corner, you know, tinkering with a plastic model kit. Um, and we didn't say much, but like we were, we felt very connected. Um, and so that's how I am as an adult crafter. Uh, when I'm around other people who are making stuff, we're all buzzing on the same project. That feels really good to me. That's like, that's maybe my church. Mm -hmm. I have one. Um, that, that feeds my spirit. Uh, and I've also had like really good experiences when I'm getting direction from uh, other artists. Um, one of the benefits of working where I work right now is that our director is not just a good movie director, but he can also do a lot of the same animation work. And so when he gives feedback, it's coming from a place of understanding the trade. And so like, yeah, I mean, if somebody is directing me and giving me that kind of feedback and they understand the work, that's, that's the good stuff right there. Yeah, for so, sure. So you are more appreciative of the process than really of the final product as far as it goes with the, the collaborative projects. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess like with a collaborative project, I don't, I have not yet had the experience where I've been super invested in the final product being an exact specific way. Mm -hmm. Like all my work with Factory Obscura has been like, I'm just glad to be here. I love that I'm part of the process. Um, and the final thing we make is a culmination of all these cool artists I know working together. And so I'm not super hung up on it coming out a specific way, at least most of the time. Uh, same thing with movies. Like a movie can't be made without hundreds of people participating. And so you can tie like a specific ego to it. Like a lot of movies are, we credit the director for a movie, but really what's happening is a huge team of people collaborating. And right. that movie or that massive piece of installation art is an expression of all of those people. Now, with my solo album that I'm working on, I am super hung up on how it comes out. Like, yeah. I, I definitely, I, I will tweak one little part of that for the last couple of weeks. I just keep making minor edits to this one song and then like listening to it on my car stereo, which is my, that's my favorite test is like testing music in the car stereo. Uh, and then going back and being like, how do I fix what I just broke? Uh, so yeah, I don't know. It's like a, it's an I, me, mine sort of project. Yeah. yeah I can get really, really so, hung up on it. What about whenever, like, so working on a movie, have you ever had a situation where the part that you, that you worked on for the majority of the time ended up on the cutting room floor? Oh yeah. All the time. Does that, does that, that would piss me off. I'd be like, Oh, like I worked so hard on that and nobody's ever going to see it. Yeah. So, yeah. It makes me super mad. I hate it. How do you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. So like, that's a normal feeling. That's good. Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's pretty healthy to be sad when sad stuff happens to you or mad when stuff that's angering happens. And I think the trick is like, not like avoiding those feelings it's how do we deal with them like how do we process that for me it's journaling and you know maybe going into my backyard at midnight and screaming at the moon um but yeah i mean like you, you kind of have to be a little galvanized to do art and I, i'm sure this is true of almost any trade where you're making a thing you know you make the thing you're real sure about it and then somebody comes along and they're like oh that sucks or, you know, maybe a gentler way would be like, please remove this from my 
my domicile. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that's but, not right uh, for this for this situation. That's how I taught my wife to tell me that she doesn't like something. That's yeah. not right for the situation. I've tragically not yet experienced someone like seeing my art and then they were like, I can't even look at this. You know. So you tra- tragically I, not I, experienced? I've not yet gotten there. Like I've never had somebody that do you want do you want somebody do you want to get that because I mean it would be kind of exciting. Right? The whole like, point of artists to I've get a really reaction. Right? The bottom. Like I've figured out the parameter that I need to avoid. And also <laughs> I, don't I don't know. Maybe I would hate that. I would probably hate that. But it would be a new feeling and then you are you're out for for new experiences, right? So so if nothing else, you want to want to try it out just once and see how see what it's like. Yeah. Well, and also, like, there's a, a part of me that, like, wants to be really good at stuff. And, like, part of that is figuring out what my weaknesses are. Um, that's, like, a huge thing in art, too. Like, if you are avoiding areas where you're weak, you're not going to survive very long as an artist. The trick is to find the things you're not good at and kind of get obsessed with them and, like, grind on them, practice those things until you're okay or good. Um, that one I picked up in a figure drawing class because like the teacher was talking about how yeah it's hard to draw hands and feet but you got to do those things yeah that's that's what artists do they draw hands and feet and so you just gotta like if that's your weak spot do that um but yeah so like i want to know my weaknesses i want to know i don't know i want to know what's bad about me and what's good about me if i just think all the good things about me then like i can't grow yeah. Um, yeah. I think I think right there is where you're kind of underestimating your you know your fitness for this show is that that right there is what I think of as authenticity is being aware of both the good things and the bad things about you and respecting how those how you interact with the world with those things in in mind and you know a lot of people like last episode I was talking about how people don't really accept the things that they're good at for being as good as they are. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like, you're an animator. Like I've taken lots of, you know, creative like graphic design and drawing and figure drawing. I've taken all that stuff, but I could not animate my way out of a paper bag. So I know what you do is extremely special. I know that 3d, uh, 3d rendering is extremely hard. Yeah, I could teach you. <laughs> you could teach me, but it would be a lot harder for me to, to comprehend it. And it would be for you to, you know, to explain it because you've gotten to that's something that skill that you internalize. And it's so easy for you at this point. You're just like, oh, super easy. But like, that's actually a really special thing that so many people couldn't do. And people, you know, I'm like, oh, you're so amazing at that. And you'd say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It is. <laughs> it is a big deal. Like 95 percent of the population, if you took them off the street and said, animate that, they would be like, what? I have no idea how. So it's a special thing and we need to take the things that are special about us and appreciate them as much as we appreciate our weaknesses. And we focus on those things and say, Oh, I'm bad. I'm ugly. I'm, you know, I'm awkward. I'm weird. Like we talk about that stuff all the time, but we need to talk about the things we're good at too. I do like to gas myself up from time to time. Good. I think, I think more people should do that. Especially after a hard day at work, you know, like I don't journal about positive stuff. I usually, my journal is where I like throw all the garbage so mm-hmm. I can move on with my life and go do my laundry or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, like after a hard day at work, I want to sit down and just think about what am I good at? What did I do okay? Like that's, that's pretty important. And that actually goes back to me talking about is it true and is it kind like with critique and stuff? Like 
the best formula I've found for giving other artists critique, and really anybody critique on anything, is to, you kind of have to build them up first. Like, I have like a little worksheet I wrote out for when I give artists feedback, and it's like three things that are absolutely great about the thing, followed by three things that are working but could be improved some way, and then the last part is three things that could be just straight up taken out because they're not working. Um, and I've found that, like, if you don't, you don't gas people up a little bit, if you don't give them some positive truth about what they're doing and who they are, they're not going to be receptive to the stuff that needs to be tinkered with or pulled or whatever. Yeah. I mean, not many people can receive any instruction in a state of duress. You know, it, yeah. It's, yeah. So if you make somebody sad before you try to give them something to, to work on, are probably not going to do a great job of being able to, you know, put that thing into action. So I, I definitely agree with that idea. Like, I think that's a pretty cool thing that you do because, you know, you don't think a lot about how people are talking as artists. Like that's not something, that's something I think about. I think it's really cool to hear that you take the time to like actually develop a method to give feedback. So it is most beneficial for you both to give it and for them to receive it. Like, I think that's a very thoughtful thing. Cool. So I know that the place where you currently work has a lot of young people there. Like I know that, you know, I shout out to Grace Keen, who is currently working at the same place. And I know one or two other people who work there who are also pretty young. Do you ever feel like the old guy? Always. Yeah. It's like uh, I'm one of two senior VFX artists there. And we both feel very old. Uh, so, I mean, at least seniors in the name. So you're supposed to be old, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make it less weird, but yeah. Do, uh, do you feel like a pressure to perform better because there are people with like younger, nimbler minds and fingers coming up behind you? No, I feel a very strong desire to mentor young artists when I hang out with them at work. Um, I'm a compulsive helper. Uh, it's also super fun to like find these artists who are like, they're just, starting out but they're incredibly skilled already and you know i can give them a couple pointers and then they grow up very quickly and become super mega artists that go out to california and work on disney movies or whatever and i'm like i helped see i, I think <laughs> i think that's it's been a common thing in my experience talking to people who feel that way but i think in like in the overall american like society that's not a normal thing to to really encourage people that way and to mentor them and to, you know, and to take that pride in helping other people succeed. But I think it's a really special thing that is awesome. And like, I really applaud you doing that. Well, thank you. I, I, I think collaborate, well, the future is collaborative. That's Factory Obscura's motto, I think. Uh, but I believe it. Like, and also uh, life is so much bigger and your trade. Mm -hmm. Life is about relationships and love and compassion. And those are the things that I want to express at work within reason. Uh, but like, I want to nurture, you know, a sense of community and family in my workplace and help people who are growing as artists. That's the most important thing to me. Uh, I have yet to meet a project that made it like 
that that downgraded that feeling for me. Like mm-hmm. I feel like you know someday I'll be on my deathbed thinking about my life, and I want to look back and think about you know making connections with other human beings. That's awesome. that's important to me. That's very cool. Um, so as a creative, do you feel like because this is something I struggled with? Like I have a creative brain, but do you feel like your leadership is good at making the expectations clear and easy to execute? My my leadership, like my bosses or yeah. me? Yeah, your your bosses. Ooh, well, I uh, I probably won't pick apart uh, my boss's management style on a public podcast. Well, let's just, just say, say uh, on like, the whole, as a creative, the experiences you've received as a creative and people telling you, like you spoke to the director you're working with right now, being really good at having the understanding of what you're working on and oh, yeah. being able to give good direction that way. But like... He gives clear direction and it's always understandable. He explains himself and like, he always makes it connected back to the trade, like the actual rules of our trade. Mm-hmm. And... uh it makes it very easy to work directly under him, for sure. What about, have you had any struggles with other, you know, other leadership in the past? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, if you're familiar with the mechanics of office politics, uh, all creative jobs are exactly the same. It's, uh, there are sometimes power vacuums, and sometimes people are pushy, and sometimes egos happen, and, like, all that stuff is just, that's just a normal workplace thing for sure and have you been able to keep your same like mentality of mentorship and collaboration and you know kind of loving the process through all that yes and i will say that there have been times in my art career where i have found it to be important to me personally to fight for the rights of my fellow workers. And I think that I don't want to get too political, but uh, I think that it's really important for people in like who are making things, working with their hands, working some way in a non-manager way to sort of take care of each other and look out for each other because sometimes somebody's yelling at you and that's not okay. That's not professional. Yeah. Like even if they have power over you, they should not. I mean, I, I feel like this connects back to the stuff that's important to me as a parent. And that is that like, we should treat our fellow human beings with respect and try to take care of each other because humans are a pack species and we do better together. Yeah. That's really awesome. I'm glad I made it sound cool. <laughs> you did a good job. It sounded great. Like, um, so currently, do you have people working under you? Sort of, yeah. As a senior VFXer, I sometimes issue decrees. Uh, depending on how organized I am on a given day, those orders may or may not make sense to the people working for me. Uh, but I do my best to try to help people know what to do next and how to do it if they need it. Do you think that you're a consistent leader? No, no, I'm pretty moody, but you know, I'm trying to be nice. So here's 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 what I what I've developed on leadership whenever it comes to consistency. That doesn't mean that you always respond the same way. It means that you respond to your response the same way. Mm-hmm. And so whenever you are in a bad mood and you, you know, you have that bad interaction, if you were consistent, you always go back and have another conversation with that employee and you say, 
hey, that was inappropriate the way I approached you about that thing. I just want to make sure you know that you're important and that I, that was unfair of me. So that's what I mean by consistency. Uh, well, in, in terms of like regulating my emotions in the workplace, I've never. Okay, well, one time I yelled at a boss, but that was a special circumstance. <laughs> I feel like they probably deserved it. I I can't speak to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Nobody deserves to get yelled at. <laughs> right. Uh, maybe he did. Maybe he did. I don't know. Uh, you know who you are. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like for me, it's more like I feel like I have disrespected people who are working under my direction when I give them inconsistent or like sort of gaslighty goals, you know, mm -hmm. like moving goalposts yeah. sort of things. And I hate it when I do that because it frustrates people and it makes them feel like they're going nuts because they're like, this is like, I've been fed some, you know, narrative about reality that is not real. It yeah. doesn't make any sense. So my goal in giving directions to people who are working with me, for me, however you want to put that, uh, is I just want to be friendly and try to approach truth. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think I would consider that consistent. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, oh, so talking about that being young thing or like dealing with the, the youngsters at your work, whenever I was at school, like this was last year, I went back to school and finished my bachelor's and was working with a lot of the creative people doing graphic design and like uh, figure drawing. Like I said, um, I struggled a bit with wanting to seem cool. Like I never let it take priority over the learning or like the experience at all. But like sometimes whenever we had to present, I would feel that clinch, like, you know, oh God, like they're going to think that I'm the lame old dude who's not good at this and I should hang up my, you know, my Photoshop or whatever. Mm, I but feel that every day. Do you, do you, so how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, I don't know. I, I, let me preface this with uh, a bit of reality about me being an artist, and that is that during the COVID epidemic, I had a job where this big mega corporation bought out the company and laid everybody off, and suddenly I was unemployed, and I was on unemployment, and all I could think was, what a relief. Mm. This is great. I'm going to go back to school, and I did. I went back to online school. I cleaned my house. I like sat around, hung out with my kids. It was wonderful. Um, and I really thought that I wasn't ever going to go back to my art career. And now I've lost the original thread. What was your question? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, the, 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 we were talking about the desire to, to be cool. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I don't know how that relates to that. Other than like every day at work, I worry about that. And like part of me is a little bit aloof now because of that. Like, so was that part of the reason why you didn't think you would come back? Is that that? that feeling to try to, you know, fit in with the people while you're doing this thing? Was that the, the fear? No, no. Uh, the, again, I'm going to sound a little soapboxy, uh, but in the last 20 years, the American workplace has experienced a slide in terms of workers' rights and the way people are treated. Uh, wages have been hovering at a low average while cost of living has gone up extremely. And I think that it is very important for workers to organize at this point. Um, and so we as a society can start to address 
how we treat people when they are at the workplace. Because people, I mean, when you have a job, your life happens at work, hours and hours of your life. Mm-hmm. And if those hours are unpleasant and your needs aren't met, uh, it, we're creating a spiritual drought. We're, we're creating a generation of people who are increasingly sad or malnourished or don't have access to healthcare or whatever. So um, my personal feeling is that many of the jobs that are available in the American like job market are non-essential. We found that out during COVID, like a lot of work is non-essential work. And maybe, maybe like the answer to all of our problems isn't everybody being employed all the time. And like, maybe our future relies on innovation, especially now that we're wrestling with big, heavy stuff like climate change. Like we need people to chill out and think new thoughts. We need mm. people to come up with new solutions to these these big problems we've created by doing the same thing over and over. The grind, like burning fossil fuels, or in many ways, just like burning people energy. Um, as I as I said earlier, I've made a lot of art that I wouldn't have chose to make, and I've made it for a lot of people I wouldn't necessarily have chosen to work for, simply because I was chasing down money. Yeah. or feeding my family, or whatever the heck, uh, or needing to go to the dentist, or whatever. So, I so don't know. Tying that into a question I was going to ask later, but, you know, you talked about these big, heavy problems that we're dealing with. Does that tie into your view of AI in the future? Yeah, yeah. I think, <clears throat> I'm glad you brought up AI, although, like, I'm kind of aimlessly excited about it. I don't really know. I'm like I'm on the fence because I'm excited, but I'm also terrified. Like you know, I think it's going to keep going up, uh, like on a balance scale. Like it's going to keep one side goes up, the other side goes up because as it gets more impressive, it gets more terrifying. <laughs> I think the thing about AI that well, there's there's a lot of components of why people are afraid of it. One is the basis of my problem with the American workforce, which is that it's coming for our jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Like people are afraid they're going to lose their jobs, but then like, look at what most jobs are. Like, is that important? Is that right. necessary for the survival of humanity? Does this benefit people? Like, what is the purpose of this? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, ask a telemarketer if they want to go home and take a break and maybe just get paid to stay at home. They'll be like, yeah, I don't think this telemarketing is helping anybody. Right. right? Like, and there's a lot of jobs, like not all jobs. I mean, some jobs are very important and we're always going to need people working on things. Um, but also like, you know, if, if we can get AI to automate AI and automation to, to make some of these things just sort of happen automatically or maybe phase them out, I'm okay with that. Um, I know like that in many ways makes me kind of a traitor to other artists because a lot of artists right now are very worried because like one of the first things AI was used to do, right, is synthesize art, like mm-hmm. feed it. This huge training set of artwork made by hardworking artists and then the AI can just dynamically spit that out forever. Infinite, cheap art, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think that AI is going to come for a lot of our, our jobs that way. A lot of what we do, we're going to have to question ourselves. Like, is this valuable to me to know? And is this work important to me? 
even though maybe it's not essential anymore. Um, but as a, an animator, I'm very excited about AI. Uh, there's a lot of my job that makes no sense for a human to have to do, and it's really boring, and it's really repetitive, and it doesn't really, like, there's no benefit to a human doing it. Like, I think about uh, at work, we do something called rotoscoping, mm -hmm. which is just tracing over people and live footage so that you can put them in front of or behind uh, CG characters. Yeah. And that's, like, a huge component of it. And, like, you can lose weeks to rotoscoping a shot that's maybe just a few seconds. You're just tracing a person over and over and over. And, yeah, okay, AI can do that. It's fine. I'll let the robots have that one. Question. So this is this is me like going going off on a little bit of just a curious aside. Like I'm, I'd say I'm pretty much proficient in After Effects. Not great at it, but I'd say I'm proficient. So there's like a rotoscoping tool there. Is the difference between like movie level editing and what people do at home, or you know, like even semi professionally, some professionally, but not great professionally. Is it the not using the rotoscoping tool and tracking it? versus actually like going by frame by frame and hand rotoscoping? Well, I, I mean, if you're talking about the roto brush, yeah. uh, I love that thing. And that is actually AI powered. Make, makes sense. Yeah, you like trace a little spot and then it tries to guess. Mm -hmm. um, my experience with roto work is that whatever tool works the fastest is the one you want to use. So if Rotobrush is giving you professional looking results, then you have professional results. Yeah. Art is all about how a thing looks, right? Mm -hmm. with, with video games, when I was doing 3D modeling, it was a little different. My art had to look good from several mm -hmm. uh, angles. But uh, when I'm editing a shot in a movie, all that matters are those pixels. And it doesn't matter what kind of cyber crimes I had to commit to get there. <laughs> um, it, you know, there's no, there's no wrong way if you come out with good results. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. That, that, that little aside took me off of where I was going to go next. Cause you said something that interested me and now I'm trying to remember what it was. So we're talking about AI and um, my fear isn't the, it's coming for our jobs. It's kind of going back further to what you said about, burning people fuel mm -hmm. like it's my i'm very much the matrix here where we literally become the fuel for the machines like that's where it gets scary to me is that the machines get smart enough to realize that we're the problem and we are also the solution by being the fuel and that also solves the problem that the damage we're doing by putting us in a state where we can't actually actively do damage to anything and we provide fuel to the machine so they can go fix everything that's scary. That's, you know, that's totally unrealistic, but still scary. I think it's actually very realistic. See, you're not I supposed to say that. No, I think it's incredibly realistic. And I think that at the root of it is a fear that we have as a species. And that is that the future of consciousness may not be in human heads. Mm. The future of consciousness may not be in humans or even like DNA-based life at all. Like once, once you create AI, uh, the way we have, and it's it's not super complex yet, but it will be uh, the stuff that can develop preferences just the way a living thing can, not exactly, but to the point where it starts to become indistinguishable from real consciousness, like that calls into the question, like 
is the ideal place for personhood and consciousness inside of a human body. Uh, I don't, that freaks me out. But so, also, so you, like, it gives me a little hope because I, I, you know, there's some part of me that looks at like climate change stuff and like some of the projections for that. And like, maybe humans don't have a super long time. So, are, are you saying like in our bodies versus like what, like a cloud consciousness or in a machine or however that manifests with AI? Um, I think one of the major differences between us and like a human person and uh, a functioning trained AI is it, it's just a matter of having a body or not. Like, I think if you take uh, learning tech and you put it into a body that has some, like, mechanical inclinations, like, it need, like it's going to want to recharge its battery. It's mm-hmm. going to want to take shelter in the rain or something. Like, that, if you just let it exist and learn, being in a body, in an environment, it's going to be almost indistinguishable from people. That's my opinion. But also, I want you to take whatever I'm saying about AI with a grain of salt, because I am just an artist. Yeah. I mean, we're all just something. So, I mean, it's a conversation that is, it's important to have, because if, if the public isn't concerned, isn't part of the conversation, people who are not the public are going to make the decision for us. And so, I mean, I, I definitely am willing to give up a certain amount of security for a certain amount of convenience. Like that's, that's the trade-off. And, you know, you were talking about like rotoscoping and, you know, the pre-modeling. I think that removing a lot of the minutia by giving it to AI allows you to think bigger thoughts, solve bigger problems. Uh, Chris Doe, who's one of my favorite podcasters and a designer talks about all the time that AI just gives the right now gives the manual labor of design to the robot so you can have bigger design ideas. And like, I, I, I really like that part, but at the same time, like, I don't know how to draw the line and say like, this is where we have to stop before. And I don't know if, I don't know if there is a point where you can even say like, it has to stop here before it turns into that tipping point where it can be a dangerous creation. I don't know. Well, I think it, it's already a dangerous creation. We like a lot of our military uh, fighter planes are unmanned and <laughs> nearly, nearly invisible. And, mm-hmm. Like I was reading about a, a stealth uh, drone the other day that the U.S. uses a lot, and it's got cameras on the top and a bunch of little screens on the bottom. So that it looks exactly like the sky is oh, flying man. through, and it is fully auto- autonomous and powered by like through AI. And so, like this stuff, it's not only is it going to manage us more in the future, but it's already managing us. It, it handles our mortality wow. in ways that we probably don't want to think about on a daily basis. Um, so I feel like at this point, it's inevitable. Um, and I also, yeah, I don't know. I, I, humanity is, is a relatively new species. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's not a lot of guarantee that we're, our species is going to be around forever. But ha- Having that elevated consciousness and awareness of that how, does that, how does that sit with your identity? Like, you know, tying it all back into honoring yourself and authenticity, like knowing that looming thing and being, you know, both interactive with it 
very often like i know you do like a lot of ai art and stuff how like how does that like how do you deal with that like that intrinsic and very deep conflict well i think it goes back to the idea of like rugged individualism right that's a, that's a story that we tell ourselves after we've been told it many times the idea that our individual self is not actually part of a large network of things that are doing things you know like we're part of family units we're part of workplaces we're kind of like I mean, I'm not physically connected to you or my coworkers, but in many ways, we are kind of a network of, mm-hmm. of cells, you know? Um, and I think that the idea of AI having consciousness and being part of that sort of tapestry, for lack of a less hippie-ish term, is cool. I think it's cool. I think it's a, a great, I think it's a way for us to be less lonely in the universe, too. Uh, the idea that we could have a thing that thinks the same way we do and has some similar concepts of what reality is to us, that's cool. And you don't think that that similar that that prospect of similar consciousness is a threat to our consciousness? Um, I mean, it, lots of things are threats to our consciousness. Um, yeah. Social bad, media. Bad habits, for example. Yeah, yeah social media. Yeah. Same thing. Really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, I, I don't know, like, or just do you ever think about how many things you do every day, the exact same thing, and wonder if maybe you chose that, or maybe you're just doing it every day, because that's what you do. Um, I try not to think about thoughts like that. Like, <laughs> I also try not to think about whether or not this is actually real existence, or we're in the matrix, or if it's a thought program, like, the, you know, the, I can't remember the philosopher that said that, you know, what if we're not actually here? What if we're just part of a thought program that is we're well, all laying asleep somewhere and this is, I mean, which is basically what the Matrix is based off of. We're so. all, all chained up in a cave and we're looking at the shadows on the wall cast by the fire. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah I love that stuff. And I hate also, it. <laughs> like, there's, no, there's no way to know. And also we now have some science that indicates that maybe our universe is a little more frail than we thought and that maybe our material reality is a projection from something less dimensional like 2d uh again we're i'm traipsing I'm into territory that i'm not really qualified to talk about as an expert but like i don't know like i think i think individual consciousness is a story we tell ourselves and it's very comforting it comforts these bodies that we are mm-hmm. um but when it comes down to it a lot of the things we do things that we're just going to do no matter what mm-hmm. authentic or not that stuff's going to happen right yeah. the body's just going to do some things and i'm going to switch gears like i could i could carry on this vein of conversation for a long time but i know that my wife will be listening and we would definitely lose her if we talked about this stuff any longer uh, <laughs> she she's not she doesn't like thinking about breaking reality type things it makes her it aggravates her anxiety Hmm. I mean, it aggravates my anxiety, honestly. Yeah, like, me, me too. Yeah, but you, but you still like it a little bit, and like I, like I appreciate that. I think that's pretty cool that you, you are still thinking those deep thoughts. Well, I like to take a trip to the dark place pretty regularly. <laughs> I like to think the weird stuff because it's fun, you know. Like it's like playing D anD D or like watching <laughs> a spooky movie. Yeah, I think it's definitely like watching a scary movie, but it might be real, and that scares me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so to switch gears a little bit, like, so you currently co-parent your children, right? Yeah. Like, how would you say you're a successful co-parent? Oof. I I don't know what. As much as you, as much as you're a a successful parent, would you say that you are a, as successful co-parenting? Those are those are really big moving targets for me. But what I will say is that I'm proud of the relationship I have with my two kids and uh, the way I've been able to nurture that. And uh, I will also say that since my my partner uh, or my ex and I separated, I've been a lot more free to improve my dad game. And so right now I feel like I'm the best dad I've ever been. Uh, but I don't know if that's a success or fail scenario as much as it's like a work in progress. And I'm always trying to figure out how to refine that, how to, how to do better and maintain the, my relationship with my kids better. I think that's definitely a success. Like I, I wouldn't compare it to the old way in a, like necessarily, but I would say that you were trying then and you're trying now. And the way that you just described it is definitely successful. And the fact that you're thinking about how you're doing it and being intentional, that in itself is a success as a parent to me. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to validate your parenting, but I do want to say that anybody who is taking the time to think out how they're parenting is at least to some degree a success. Because it, it's, a, it's a thing that is a lot of people take for granted and they don't put the work in. And, you know, we, like our whole generation is a pretty good example of what it looks like whenever people don't do the work take like bringing up their kids i i was raised with parents who you know just tried to beat all the bad out of me and that's like i am now afraid and anxious about a lot of things that i don't think i would have been if i had been raised with more love so i actively try to do different with my kids that's it's, cool yeah <laughs> it's not cool that i was beating them. <laughs> no, no i mean you, you know like you can only really be responsible for how you respond to all the stuff that happens to you in life that's just sort of that's how how it is but like I I also have trouble calling myself a success or a fail because I make a lot of mistakes. Like, I'll, you know, I think about it, like, especially now that I only have my kids half the week, I think about it over the course of the week. Like, what can I do? How do I make this work better? What can I, like, how can I nurture these kids, make sure they're learning, make sure they're getting what they need uh, emotionally, uh, intellectually, and spiritually, whatever. But also, I make a lot of mistakes and, like, Sometimes I'll catch myself regurgitating stuff that I soaked up when I was a kid that my parents did. And I was like, I'll never do that. Um, so I don't know. I feel like I make a lot of mistakes, try to correct them, and then I make different mistakes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that being, being accepting of our mistakes is part of the success. Like, to me, that is, that's a big part of it. Because if you just made the mistakes and stayed in that, that's failure. It's making the mistakes and continually trying to improve and apologizing for those mistakes and, you know, readjusting and, you know, you're never going to be perfect. It's a continual process. So it's success to me is, are you still growing? Are you still getting better? And that's, you know, that's my goal. And I know that I am far from the best parent I've ever seen, but I'm a much better parent than I have been in the past. And I continue to try getting to be better. Well, I, I consider that to be a success. Like if you're, if you feel like you are making improvements over the way that you were raised or the way you were formed, you know, like that's kind of all we can do, right? Like yeah. you can't, you can't make a gigantic leap, at least from my experience, when I try to make a huge change in myself, 
that's not necessarily going to happen. But what I can do is accept the, you know, the sort of behaviors, ideas, and like habits of me, and then try to gradually change that. <laughs> I, I definitely, I have made a huge leap from what I was raised as, but it doesn't mean that I've made a bunch of huge leaps since I've like, I'm not going to say shunned that like that idea, but I've, I've definitely made continual progress. But the huge leap was like, I'm never going to spank my children. I've only ever put my hands on one of my kids one time ever. And that to me is a huge leap considering I, I can think of 10, 15 times that I was spanked and then another couple of times in which I was slapped. And, you know, like that's, that was my reality. That I'm was sorry that happened to you. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. I had a few moments like that as a kid, but it wasn't frequent. Yeah, and I mean, and it, you know, looking at what frequent was for me, two or three, like I would say two or three like spankings every six months was pretty regular mm. but for somebody else like people went home and got wailed on every day yeah. so like and and like i feel like i feel so bad for them that doesn't mean i shouldn't also feel bad for the childhood me as well you know i'm trying to trying to get better at not comparing other people's trauma yeah. you know and saying like it's okay that i had this thing and that was a big deal to me it's you know it's a continual process of just like appreciating that trauma hurts the thing about being little and experiencing any kind of violence is that you carry that with you forever and there's no easy way to set it down. You can't put it anywhere. It's just, at least, again, I'm speaking from my own experience. Like there's no, there's no extraction of no. that. Like it's just always in here. Yeah. And so I feel like there's definitely a component of vigilance. Like I've definitely had moments where I've been really frustrated as a parent and I'm like, okay, I just need to walk out of this room yeah i think that it's a really good point that it's you know that is one of the things that that you can never get rid of but you can adjust how you deal with it you can you know make sure that you don't let those things guide you like this is you know a big part of my last two years of life has been kind of looking at how those things that happened in my childhood has still affected the way i act and you know my current life and there was a lot of stuff that was going unchecked because I just never took the time to like process those emotions and deal with those things. And once I started looking at it, it was like, wow, I like, I hide from a lot of stuff because, or I lie because I was terrified of getting spanked. And because whenever I, you know, whenever I lied, I'd get spanked. And so I'd try to lie better instead of like lie less and be honest. It was like the, the goal was like, if I catch you doing this again, okay, don't get caught. And get better at lying, get better at hiding. And that was like my continual journey for like 35 years of my life. Ooh. And then it was like, oh crap, I've been doing this for 35 years. Now I have to unlearn this thing because I've been lying to my wife. I've been hiding from my kid. Mm -hmm. I've been, you know, faking this life for, you know, as a married man, almost 15 years. Holy crap. <laughs> so that's a lot of work. But knowing it, realizing the effect that it had and just like you know being able to put a name to it yeah was it, it really yeah it was a huge it was a huge unlock for me that made a, such a massive difference and then sharing that burden with my wife and having her accept me and love me anyways another huge like like huge growth moment for me is that sometimes it's dealing with it when you're you know on your own level that was my first level of like authenticity and honesty was like being truthful about all the things I've been hiding and lying about. Then it was sharing it with my wife, who is my partner and my best friend. It was like, I, like I, I need to tell you these things. 
which one of those was like, if you don't start doing some self-work, like we're not going to be able to work out. I was like, okay, I've been doing the work. Here's what I found. This is going to hurt. And, you know, it was painful for both of us to have that conversation, but it has made us both better spouses because she understands me better. And I unburden myself of all those things that I was still holding on to from, you know, up to 30 years ago. Oof, yeah. <laughs> a lot of snot in that conversation. Heavy. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. It was very heavy. So um, you've, talk, you've talked some about your, your former spouse. Is your, your relationship still fairly good? Oh, it's way better now that we're split up. Really? Yeah. It's kind of like uh, we had, I've heard this repeated a few times, COVID came for the straight couples. Uh, And I think it's true to a certain degree. A lot of people were suddenly forced to work from home and they were in close quarters with their spouse and forced to confront potential flaws their relationships may have had. And I think that us being sort of crammed into the same space along are you know pretty quickly after the divorce able to still attend those you know those those benchmark events and do that stuff together so the kids still getting at least a partial like both of my parents here experience and i think you know i would i would like to see it you know in 10 years what those kids look like you know what kind of issues they're facing if you know the ones that you know divorce kids do this that's you know i'm a divorce kid who did this well, let's see these kids who whose parents are divorced and still get along. Let's see what that looks like. I, I bet it'll be different. I hope so. I, I want, you know, I want great things for my kids. And uh, being a dad was not something that I really thought was in the on the books for me. I guess when I was young, mm-hmm. uh, then I got married to my ex, and she was 
very compelling and was like, yeah, I want to be a good mom. We should have kids. Let's set a date. I was like, <gasps> okay. Um, and then, I don't know, my kids have definitely been, this is going to sound a little like inhuman, but they've been my favorite creative project. Like, <laughs> I, I love doing oh, wow. good things for them and seeing the cool stuff they do as a result. So, yeah. I mean, and, and I, I definitely, I wouldn't say those exact words, but I, I share the sentiment of seeing something that you had a very large part in putting on this planet grow and, you know, you've shaped them and you've been able to help them like make the best of this life. And it's really cool to like, I don't know, like I'm in the phase with my oldest now to where it's like, we're watching anime together and I'm able to appreciate these things and have good conversations. And like, you know, she's not just my friend. Like, I'm not going to say she's like my best friend. It's like, she's like a good friend whom I still have to parent. But like, I still have to, you know, every now and then say hard things, but I still get to enjoy this little version of myself. I'm not going to say version of myself, version of good things about me that I've been able to protect. Yep, absolutely. And, They're and, like little us's with far less baggage. Yes. Yeah. And, I, and I love that. Like, I, I love the opportunity to continue to protect that. It's hard. You know, it's, it's a really good job. Like, and I would never, I would never give it up for anything to, you know, have that ability or that, that responsibility to keep that person who we created in the best shape as possible into her adulthood. Like, it's a, it's a tough goal, but we want to get her there pretty, pretty well undamaged so then she can, you know, take on life with a fresh start and like a lot of us were unable to. Agreed. So, from what I understand, and you can tell me if this is, if this is too personal, your ex ended up getting with the person who she had been with for like a lot of high school very closely after you guys divorced. Did, uh. that, <laughs> did, did that, how did, how did you deal with that? Uh, maybe very sad and like, jealous. Je like jealousy is where I go immediately. I immediately think, how long has this been brewing? Mm. Like, was that, was that your thinking? And like, what conversations did you have with her? Many animated, loud conversations, uh, which I will not repeat. Yeah, I mean, I don't expect you to repeat the conversations, but... Um, I don't know. I tried to make room in my life for that because it was obviously on the horizon. And I was like, well, okay, maybe we can have like an open marriage. And then when the marriage was open, it was the worst I have ever felt in my entire life. Like my heart had been torn out of my body and was being stomped on. So I decided maybe that wasn't for me. <laughs> I think that's probably a good decision. Uh, yeah, this is a clean retelling, but uh, yeah, it was a rough ride. It sucked. So, was I'm not, it? I'm not jealous anymore. I, I feel very relieved to be free of what was a very broken dynamic in our marriage. Wow. Our marriage had like a lot of great moments. I was married for 14 years, and uh, much of that is really brilliant, wonderful memories with someone who like. I don't know anybody else who I can talk to on the level that I was able to talk to her. Uh, and so that's the kind of stuff I want to hang on to. Um, and like looking at the breakup and like who she settled with and all that stuff. Like, I don't know. It kind of makes me sad, but I feel like it helps me learn a lot. So well, it seems like you've gained a lot of levity from it, but Yes. I, like, I've, I've, 
I want to clarify. You said it was on the horizon before you guys even opened your marriage. What, is, what does that mean? Uh, I mean, like, they were talking. Uh, so, so was this... I had a vibe, as the kids say. Okay. And you tried to be... Instead of saying, like, this needs to stop right now, you tried to, you know, tried to create a, a situation where your relationship could exist in the space along with that relationship. Yeah. Well, and, like, this is... This is happening while other stuff is going wrong in our lives. Mm -hmm. a, best, a mutual best friend died around that time. COVID was happening, so we were stuck in the same space. We weren't super getting along. So it was like, I could pinpoint that one thing. I could say, this is why the whole right. marriage went down in flames, but that's not true. The truth is, there were a whole bunch of systemic issues. There were lots of cracks in the ruined. foundation. Yeah, so it's like, I could, I mean, like, I've definitely had moments where I've been hyper-focused on this one thing, this jealousy thing, because jealousy is one of the biggest, scariest emotions, right? Like, yeah. it feels like your very, like, existence is being threatened, right? Like, your way of life, yes. everything, everything you're connected to that's important, you want to hang on to it. Um, but, I don't know. My personal feeling about jealousy is that if it controls you, it's already too late. Mm. Like, it's too late for you to participate in that relationship in a healthy way anymore if jealousy is what's driving your choices. So, I mean, I think that's, a, that's an amazing, like, an amazing takeaway. But how did you get there? How did you get to that point where you could say that? Um, massive amounts of therapy. Talk therapy really helped me. Well, it was talk therapy, and it was talk therapy with someone who I liked. It was someone who had enough similarity to me in age, culture, whatever, where I was able to talk to him. And also, like, I didn't want to be jealous anymore. Like, jealousy is painful, and it's but, but you do often enter into that. Like, you know, anybody, it's like wanting to feel jealous is one of those, like, it's one of those intoxicating emotions where you're, you know, you almost don't want to stop. Right. Yeah, it's bittersweet, for yeah. sure. Melancholy, sort of. So part of the key for you was accepting that you wanted to move on and you didn't want to be jealous anymore. But yeah, I didn't want to feel it anymore, for sure. For me, but, jealousy is a physical sensation in my gut. Mm -hmm. and it's horrible. Yeah. It feels awful. And uh, yeah, I don't know. For me, it was like, I, I would just ask myself, do I want to feel this way anymore? And the answer was no. Like, of course, I don't want to have a tummy ache. <laughs> Nobody wants with, a tummy like, ache. Extreme despair, right? Yeah. Like that's the opposite of what most people want. Um, and also, like, I didn't want this thing to define me, right? Yeah. Like, I didn't want to be the guy whose existence was defined by those parameters. Um, and jealousy also had been like sort of, a, sort of a core component in our first getting together. Like I'd been kind of like weirdly possessive. Like I wasn't like aggressive or mean about it. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe I was. I don't know. I had the capacity to be a jerk, a jealous jerk when we first got together. And like I look back on that and I don't like that either. Mm -hmm. Like I'm like, that to me, like, that may have been authentic, but I don't want that to be the authentic mm -hmm. me. I want yeah. to avoid that. Yeah. Uh, if I have a partner, I want to trust them, and I want to 
uh, I'm a big subscriber to the whole let them methodology or whatever you want to call it. Basically, like, you know, you love somebody and you see them doing a thing that maybe you don't approve of, you just gotta let them do it. Mm -hmm. Don't let them do their thing. Uh, And if that leads to the dissolution of a relationship, maybe that's supposed to happen. Like, I don't don't feel like a good relationship is the kind you have to, like, fight for unless you're fighting yourself to change, right? Um, I don't ever want to fight a partner or someone I'm close to. I mean, unless they, like, vote for Trump. I like I like that you made that amendment that you it's not something that you fight for unless you're fighting yourself because like I do think that you do have to fight for like a marriage it's you have to be working on it you have to be working for it and that that is the fight but it is like you said with yourself if I am constantly telling my wife she needs to work on herself harder then like that I'm not gaining any ground like I'm really I'm really digging into the idea of like keeping your side of the, the keeping your side of the street clean really taking care of your own mental health, trying to grow yourself and then communicating with your partner openly and like telling them, Hey, this is, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm thinking. I just want you to know and letting them act accordingly and, and, you know, hopefully meet you there and you're both growing towards the same place. Yeah. Well, that was, that was another systemic problem with my marriage is that like there weren't people, we weren't portioning time and space for each other to be, fully ourselves and feeling our feelings mm-hmm. there was a lot of like this is the right way no this is the right way um and then it led to conflict which oftentimes had no solution yeah so yeah i don't know yeah you said something else really interesting that i want to dig into you said there's a lot of therapy with someone i liked someone with i think it's really everybody says go get therapy right yeah. And that's that's where it stops. And well, I think yeah, it can't just be any therapy though. Yeah, even if it's like a, you know, this person's the best therapist in all of Oklahoma. Okay, but is it the best therapist for you? Right. I th- yeah. I think that's something that's important to talk about. So talk about your experience a little bit more about why this one was so good for you. Um similar age, similar life experiences, um, and similar values. Um there's this is my opinion. Uh there's no way you're going to benefit from a therapist who has a completely different uh, cultural background to you. Like, it's just not, it's not going to work. I mean, you can't, you can't just go find a therapist who's going to agree with you about everything. Cause what's the point then? Right. You need somebody to be like, Hey, that, that's whack. Don't do that. Yeah. Um, but it, it makes it more, it makes that advice more believable and more digestible when it's coming from someone who has some similar textures to you personally. It could be religious upbringing or like experience with divorced parents or non-divorced parents or like whatever those developmental parameters are or whatever. Like, I feel like it's, I don't think you should be like your best friends with your therapist, but like there has to be some sort of common ground. Um, and I think, like, post-COVID, we've had the benefit of the whole world realizing that mental health is incredibly important, right? People are reaching for therapy, but, like, that's not the whole shebang. Like, you gotta, you got to kind of sift through who's a good mental health professional. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would definitely agree that for that deep work, you need somebody specialized for you. 
But I, I would say that, you know, a good therapist can help with a lot of the basics to start out with. So, you know, if you if you find a person and they're not like the person, I think you should still keep seeing somebody until you find the person to, you know, to because re- sometimes you just need help. Like, and some, you know, and a lot of therapists are good with the big, broad help. But whenever it gets into, like, the deeper work of, you know, digging into certain parts of it, it does help to have, for one, somebody you feel more comfortable opening all the way up with and somebody who you identify with is going to be easier to open all the way up with. So that's one thing. And also somebody who has life experience to draw from for that thing is going to have more than textbook knowledge of that thing. Because the textbook knowledge is super helpful. Like, I'm not going to discount that at all. But that life experience adds that next level, like that, that level up, which is going to help a specific person, I think. For sure. For sure. I, yeah, I, I just appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, so I'm going to start trying to bring this to a close because we're approaching two hours and like it's been like that's it bye yeah it's like I've been like 45 minutes maybe I've I've said that my superpower is being able to sit people in that seat and forget how long they've been there like I really enjoy doing this it's so fun and I've learned so much about you and I honestly could talk for another two hours but I told my wife I'd try to start keeping them under two hours (laughs) and I, I think that's fair you know like that's Hey, you know, let's be, let's be open and communicate and tell me what's, what you're feeling. And she's like, you're taking too long. Like, okay, fair. Um, is there anything about the animator 3d archetype that like irks you or that you really don't identify with? Um, a lot of artists, production artists specifically are ruggedly independent and it tends to do more harm to the individual than if they're collaborative. And so I think that would be a major issue. Like right now, Hollywood is striking and the VFX teams at Disney are looking like they're going to unionize. And honestly, that will be a surprise to me because like a lot of the animators and production artists I've known in my life have been very competitive and individualistic. And I just, you know, I hope if any of y'all are listening, just hold hands with each other and be nice. Collaborate. I mean, because we, we see how much is getting done with people not working together. That's that's been what how long has it been now? Like eight months? I'm taking a total guess. The strike. Has it been that long already? I, I don't know. That's a total guess, but by the time this airs at least it'll be eight months. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> or not have a job. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I hope people are eating. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. But I also know, having seen the inside of the film industry, that that strike is justified. And I hope that, yeah, I hope people can figure out how to collaborate. Making movies is fun and cool, and it's a privilege. And so it boggles my mind that the people who pay for these things don't want to pay creatives for their hard work. I mean, it's always the people who get the, who are so used to making so much money that they can't even fathom giving up 10% to pay everybody much better. It is, it is nuts. And I don't think it's even 10%. I think it's like a fraction. I mean, that's me thinking of NFL, NBA, the NCAA, every like huge industry that is making so much money off of a certain group of people. And they say, Hey, we want to be paid more. They're like, (laughs) and you know, and it could be, you know, somewhere between two and 10% that would give everybody enough to be happy. And they're just like, well, I don't think so. Football is so interesting to me because, like, it feels like some kind of mind riddle thing. Like, 
you get to have $12 million, but you have to sustain massive brain damage forever. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> do, do I want $12 million that bad? Would I be smart enough to enjoy that money? I don't know. Here, here's, I used to play football in high school. I was never good enough to, you know, go D1 or, you know, play in pro or anything. But if I had been, and knowing the information I know now, what I would have done is I would have played through my rookie contract, hopefully been good enough to get one good contract, negotiated the heck out of it to where I could play for four years and make $120 million, work like, or, you know, spend like I lived on $100,000 a year and just then live on that. But I've only ever heard of one NFL player who does anything similar. Wide receiver who lives like he makes, a, makes I think, like 70000 a year, and everything else goes in the bank. Huh. And I'm like, but why would you not do that? Because then you can retire whenever you want to. You can stop while you're still healthy versus living like you make $10 million a year. I mean, it probably gets increasingly difficult with each collision out on the field. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The choices become less and less. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I, I don't have the frame of a person who can play football, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> like you throw me out there, and I'm just like a rag doll. I mean, you're you're tall. Like you, you if you worked <laughs> out for like you know six months to a year, you can put on ten, fifteen pounds of muscle, and before you know it, you're Randy Moss. Maybe, but why? Maybe. <laughs> okay, we're, we're reaching. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get a long reach. I mean, that's what he had. Is that? <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go play football. After this. <laughs> yeah, at 40, I'm gonna start right now. Yeah. That would that would be a mistake. Please we'll don't go, do that. We'll go fine. <laughs> Nobody's gonna die in this situation. <laughs> um, uh, so first night recording. It's getting late. It's getting dark. Uh, I'm gonna bring it to a close. Is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to share? Uh, no, this has been super fun, and I just want to say thank you for letting me be on your podcast. I've absolutely, it's been a, a absolute joy. You did very well. I don't know why you were at all anxious. You did. You're a super great guest. Uh, I'm, I'm an anxious person. <laughs> so I guess that's why you're anxious. Yeah. Uh, where does Dan Moyer live online, and where can people find out more about you? Uh, hmm, I don't know. Uh, you could you could check my animation out at danielmoyer.net. That's dot net, not dot com. And uh, you could find me on Facebook, uh, although I don't know how much I would recommend that. Uh, Why do you say that you're going to post some real negative? And I don't I wouldn't say you post negative stuff. I'd say you post messy and real stuff. OK, well, if you're into messy and real, uh, I'm listed on Facebook as Moyer P. Dan, I think. It changes sometimes. Uh, but yeah, that's where I live online. And I don't know, do you want to share your TikTok? I know you uh, you post a lot of TikTok reels in your stories that I love because I don't have TikTok, and you post funny stuff in TikTok. Oh, well, most of what I do is repost really good TikTok. My personal TikTok is just a bunch of videos of my face, essentially, <laughs> like trying out different filters. I almost got banned the other day because my youngest got a hold of my TikTok app and was playing with filters and recorded themselves. Oh, no. And then, like, I got recorded, and I was like, oh, no. Is there like I I don't know the don't rules? Find me on TikTok. <laughs> is, is there like no recording of young people on TikTok or something? I, I have no idea. I don't. Uh, use it well, for clarity, my children run around the house without shirts on a lot. So, right. Yeah. I, I mean, we we used to. Live I think that it lot. got flagged. And, <sighs> yeah, I'm glad I'm not in jail or something. But, 
I'm glad you're not in jail too. That would totally mess up my show. <laughs> you could do this from jail. That's true. That'd be an interesting thing. I don't know how yet. I guess a call in. Yeah. So do you have any projects you're working on or any events you have that you're looking forward to and want to share? Um, in the next year or so, I should be releasing my solo album under the name Dantron McFrondan. And if you like techno music like Apex Twin or Prodigy, uh, that will probably be a thing to listen to. And my hope is to compile it into a, an audio cassette with a digital download and a label for sale at Mixtape, Factory Obscure's Mixtape. Very cool. Big plans. We'll see if I actually get there. I, I like that idea, in. though. I like the idea of the, the, the cassette. Not the actual cassette, because I don't know where you're going to have anybody to play that. Yeah, but I like gonna, it. Who's going to play it? I don't know. I like the idea of having it in the label. I think that's a really interesting idea. So there's still a physical thing to buy, yeah. but you still get the digital download because that's, you know, you, you pretty much have to have that to enjoy music today. But yeah, I still like the yeah. idea of having the physical thing as well. I thought about doing like thumb drives, but uh, I don't know. I guess most people with newer cars can stick a thumb drive in there. I don't know. We're, we're still in this weird gray zone between CDs and digital media. And I guess most people have migrated to their phones. Yeah, I've, I'm, I haven't listened to a CD. Well, I would still listen to CDs in my car, but the CD player went out. And so now I just listen to the radio because also my, uh, my dad broke my Bluetooth plug-in thing. Oh, no. So now I just have to listen to the radio, and that's so lame. Yeah, the radio is kind of whack. I mean, the radio, it served its purpose for a long time, but it's kind of a dinosaur. So thank you, Dan, for being here and having such a great conversation and for being authentic and genuine in your answers and really, you know, taking the opportunity to open up and share yourself. Well, uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please, please, please leave a review. I really appreciate the feedback and it helps me get heard by more listeners. Follow this podcast so you get updates about new episodes and live streams. If you're interested in bonus or behind the scenes content, go check out the Authentic on Air with Bruce Alexander Patreon page. Share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it right now. Check out earlier episodes to support the future creation of great content. And don't forget to like at Authentic Identity Management on Instagram, Facebook, Threads, or LinkedIn. You can also head over to the Authentic Bruce YouTube, uh, sorry, the Authentic Bruce YouTube channel for podcast video and impactful clips from my conversations with these great guests. Finally, if you are struggling to show up as yourself in your content, your work, your family, or your life, I would love to help you. Authentic Identity Management does authenticity and identity coaching to help you align your true self with the identity you share with the world. It's exhausting to live someone else's life. Live authentically and access the potential that belongs only to you. You can contact me on social or email bruce at authenticidentitymanagement.com to set up a free 30-minute consultation. That is it for today's weird episode. Thank you for listening. And until next time, be yourself and love yourself. Bye for now.